0: We're checking in with polling places from one end of the Lone Star State to the next as Texans cast their ballots on Decision Day 2018. It's Texas Standard time.
1: Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises.
0: I'm David Brown. How are the lines looking at the polls? If you're not in line, you're about to find out as we touch base with reporters statewide for the latest. Also, who actually counts all those ballots? And without a paper trail, what then? We'll explore how the sausage gets made on election night. In other news, the famous Texan who's remixing black feminism. You've heard of Beyonce, you'll wanna hear this. Plus the rare bird returning to the Texas Gulf Coast. The Texas Standard gets started right after this. No matter where you are, one story tops the rest. On this Tuesday, November 6th, yes, it's Texas Standard time on this very important decision day. Not your normal midterms, mind you. But the first nationwide election since President Trump took office. Texas, the home to what is probably the most watched Senate race in the U.S. today at stake. Also, a potential shift in control of Capitol Hill. Democrats will likely have to pass through Texas to get it and shift or no shift. Big changes to Texas's 38-member delegation are certain. A record eight members not seeking re-election already. These midterms have proven historic by many measures. 20 women are running for Congress. 15.7 million Texans registered to vote in today's Midterms, that's $1.7 million more than were registered in the previous midterms. That would be 2014. And in the marquee battle, the one between incumbent Senator Ted Cruz and Democratic Congressman Beto O'Rourke, more money has been spent than in any other in the history of U.S. Senate campaigns. A combined $110 million. In what is geographically speaking the biggest congressional district in the U.S., the Texas 23rd stretching from Bear County, All the way to the outskirts of El Paso, a battle royale between a Republican considered more moderate than the president and a Democrat hoping to become the first Filipina-American elected to Congress. There are going to be a lot of storylines to follow as the numbers come in tonight. You can bet on that. And a little later in the broadcast, we'll explore how those numbers come together. But first, let's check in with our reporting partners at polling stations across the Lone Star State, beginning with Saida Hassan of our home station KUT in the Texas capital city. See, she is at the Church of Christ in Hyde Park, which is in North Austin. Saida, what are you seeing there?
2: Well, David, the line is long, and it's been growing ever since the polls opened at 7 this morning. There were a handful of people lined up uh, around 6.50 in the early morning hours. Hmm. And, and since then, it looks like the voting process has been moving pretty slowly here. Um, I did talk with the Travis County clerk, Dana DeBuvois, who said that there were some technical issues early on this morning. Um, there was a printer down, which sort of slowed down this process. So uh, it looks like it's taking folks about anywhere from 35 to 45 minutes to vote at this location. Wow.
0: That, so so an individual going into the, the booth will spend, uh, if I understand you correctly, 30 to 45 minutes. Is that right?
2: That's right. That's what I just heard from a couple of voters who I talked to that had exited the building. Um, they said that, you know, the process went fairly smoothly. They were actually surprised. Um, well, one of the gentlemen that I talked to was surprised to look down at his watch and realize that it had taken that long. Um, this is a new voting <laughs> location this year. And, uh, you know, th- it looks like there have been some technical issues to work out this morning. But um, the last I heard, there are some folks heading over to troubleshoot the issue with the printer that was going on. And so, you know, maybe things will speed up kind of as that process moves forward. But Travis County voters do have the option to vote anywhere on Election Day. You don't have to head to this specific location or a voting location within your precinct. You can really have the option to go anywhere in the, in the county.
0: Uh, very interesting. Uh, are you surprised by how many people are out there? Given the the heavy turnout in the uh, early voting,
2: well, I think that turnout has remained strong, and it's it looks like it's it's remaining strong today. Um, you know, we did see, of course, record breaking numbers during the early voting this year, and you know, like we heard from Dana DeBouvoir, there are some folks that you know maybe wait till the last minute, or people that make it a point to cast their ballots on election day, and you know, sort of feel that sense of community and really. Wanting their vote to count and make their voice heard on election day. So I'm um, not entirely surprising. We are continuing to see strong turnout, especially at this location.
0: Saida Hassan is a reporter for our home station, KUT. She's been speaking with us from Hyde Park in North Austin, Church of Christ uh, voting station. Thanks so much, Saida. Thanks, David. All right, now let's head eastward toward the state's largest county, Harris County, where 36.6% of registered voters had voted by the end of Friday compared to half that number at the same point in 2014. Joining us now, reporter Laura Isensee, who is with Houston Public Media. Where exactly are you, Laura? I'm at
3: Spring Branch Middle School. It's in the 7th Congressional District ah. here in Houston.
0: That's a, that's a hotly contested district in what, West Houston?
3: Yeah, the district stretches from uh, close to downtown and River Oaks all the way west to um, Cypress, and it includes the Barker Reservoir, which was a big issue mm-hmm. during Hurricane Harvey. Right. And the race is uh, neck and neck between Representative Culberson and the challenger, Lizzie Panel Fletcher.
0: So, what are you seeing there at Spring Branch Middle School? How are the lines looking?
3: Well, When I got here, the poll worker told me, uh, this was before seven o'clock, that at 6.30, there were already people, about a dozen people, who had come by 6.30 and were lined up inside the school to vote. And since then, uh, we haven't seen a line out the door, but there is definitely a steady stream of voters coming and going. And I talked with one uh, voter, she was 26 years old, a college student, and she said it's the first time she's ever voted in a midterm election. She usually only votes in the presidential.
0: Very interesting. So uh, what are the uh, uh, polling workers saying about their expectations for the day? Because it sounds like, uh, in contrast with what we just heard from, uh, from Austin, you can go straight to the polling place and there's not much of a wait at all.
3: Um, Yeah, at least at this location. I haven't been to other locations yet this morning. But at least this location, the wait is fairly minimal. And I think what I've heard so far is that they they think a lot of people did vote early. And so that is reducing some of the wait times here.
0: Now, in Travis County, it doesn't matter which precinct you actually vote in. What what are the rules there? and, And what are you hearing from voters?
3: Well, here in Harris County, during the early voting, you can go to any early voting location. But on Election Day today, you have to go to your voting location in your precinct. And actually, there's been a handful of voters I've seen here in Spring Branch that have come to this middle school to vote, but then they had to leave and go to a different precinct because it wasn't their neighborhood location.
0: That's Houston Public Media's Lara Isensee reporting from Spring Branch Middle School in West Houston. All right, now let's go down I-10 a ways to San Antonio, where Lauren Terrazas is a producer for our partner station TPR, and she is covering Decision Day in San Antonio. Where are you exactly, Lauren?
4: Hi, David. I'm at Brook Hollow Library currently. That's on the northwest side of San Antonio. It's it's been a, a bit of a slow morning over here, which was a little surprising because actually during early voting, this was one of the busiest locations on a daily basis. Hmm. I want to say they had about a thousand voters showing up daily during early voting here.
0: Are you uh, I, you know, you say that's a little surprising? Then again, turnout has been pretty robust in San Antonio. I wonder if. Everyone who intended to vote has already, well, surely not, cast their ballots already.
4: You know, that could definitely be a factor. And uh, this morning also, we kind of have this blanket of fog also over the area. So even the weather could be a part of it. It kind of got me thinking maybe some people are waiting around until they get off of work, maybe later this evening, and then they'll start heading to the polls. And a lot of people I've noticed are actually in a rush as well. Unfortunately, they've been a little reluctant to speak with me just because they're trying to get from point A to point B this morning.
0: I can imagine. Just to be clear, uh, this isn't the case in Travis County, but apparently, Currently there in San Antonio, in Bear County, you have to vote. You have to cast your ballot at the appropriate precinct. Is that right?
4: That's correct. On election day only, however, during the early, early voting period, you can cast your ballot at any polling location that's most convenient to you. But on election day, you do have to be in your respective precinct.
0: That's Lauren Terrazas She's a producer at our partner station, Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Now let's move up. IH 35, about uh, 300 miles or so, and check in with Miguel Perez. He is assistant producer at our partner station in Dallas, KERA. Miguel, uh, happy Election Day, and where are you exactly?
5: Hey, I am in the Oaklawn neighborhood here in downtown Dallas um, at the Reverchon Park Recreation Center. Uh, The line's not awfully long yet, um, but people are kind of trickling in
0: to vote. So, uh, have you had a chance to talk with any of the uh, voters? Have they, what have they been telling you?
5: Yeah. So, uh, my main question for them has been, uh, why election day? Why a Tuesday when uh, when you had a couple weeks of of early voting? Sure. Um, and a lot of them honestly said uh, that they just waited until the last minute, um, but that they're here and uh, they're they're excited to vote.
0: <laughs> Classic procrastination. It sounds like.
5: <laughs> yeah. for uh, sure.
0: Uh, What about uh, Dallas County? Uh, Obviously, there's some pretty hotly contested races uh, in that uh, uh, in North Texas right now.
5: Yeah. um, So I've been asking people, you know, what 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 are you most interested in statewide or local elections? And and people are, are really interested in the local elections um, here in, in North Dallas. Uh, we have the Colin Allred-Pete Sessions race, and that's on everyone's mind. Um, and then not only the races themselves, but we also have um, these tax ratification elections um, with different uh, suburbs here in the the city. Um, and so I think that's that's what people kind of rises to the top for them.
0: In early voting, uh, you can vote uh, anywhere. What about uh, in Dallas County? Do you have to vote in the precinct you were assigned to?
5: In Dallas County, uh, that's how it works. So yeah, during early voting, you can go to any station, but the day of, uh, for election day, um, you have to go to your assigned uh,
0: precinct. That's Miguel Perez. He is assistant producer at our partner station in Dallas, KERA, speaking with us from Dallas's Oak Lawn neighborhood. Miguel, thanks. Thanks, David. Social media editor Wells Dunbar joins us now in the studio. Sort of a slow news day. Oh, yeah, you say, not yeah. lots to talk uh-huh. about. Right. <laughs> right. Right.
6: No, David, excitement and ex- anxiety all across social media I this bet. election day. Yeah, we're hearing from folks about their plans for what they're going to be doing when the returns start rolling in, whether or not they're going to dive dive in head first or maybe stream something else. I'll be back with those people's election night plans later in the show. Mm-hmm. But another election day story that's going viral news out of El Paso that the Border Patrol is planning what it calls a crowd control exercise on election day near a predominantly latino neighborhood yes a customs and border protection spokesperson tells reporter robert moore writing for the washington post there's no connection to the election but many folks including the aclu of texas pushing back against that those sentiments also being shared on social media on twitter barbara howard asks what salient being believes this timing in this place are just a coincidence one story that many people are talking about this election day you know uh and
0: this at a time when the new york times is saying watch out for or some of the false things that are being right. spread around on social media. Back in 2016, there were rumors that ICE was uh, uh, patrolling polling stations. Not true. There's going to be more in 35 minutes. Social media from Wells Dunbar.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be ethical leaders and global citizens, like Dr. Jonathan Oliver, who's researching solutions to reduce concussion damage among athletes. TCU. Lead on.
0: It's the Texas Standard on Election Day. I'm David Brown. I mentioned the New York Times a moment ago. Amid all the election news, the Times reports that new research suggests dogs can sniff out whether someone has malaria, which may prove useful in areas where malaria is almost eliminated but still vulnerable at border crossings. Now hear this. Researchers at Texas Biomedical Research Institute suspect malaria itself may be useful in helping fight off Ebola. Texas Public Radio's Bonnie Petrie explains.
7: In October 2014, Thomas Duncan of Liberia died of Ebola in Dallas, but not before infecting two nurses. They recovered, but that small outbreak of a deadly disease endemic to sub-Saharan Africa reminded us that viruses have no borders. So researchers in the U.S. have been working hard to better understand viruses like Ebola and how to fight them. And one of those researchers is Texas biomed scientist Elena Shtenko. She says there's evidence out there suggesting some people who are already infected with malaria do better if they're infected with Ebola. But there is also evidence out there suggesting
8: the opposite. She plans to get to the bottom of this. We are going to infect mice with malaria and parasite. And then, these mice are going to be challenged with the Ebola virus, and they're basically going to ask a question. Is malaria parasite protective or not?
7: Shtenko has a theory, and she hopes to find out if she's
8: right. It is the acute recent infection by malaria that is protective of Ebola. On the other hand, chronic infection with parasite actually makes individuals more susceptible to infection with Ebola.
7: But her interest with this research goes beyond malaria versus Ebola. It's about really understanding the human immune system and its response to Ebola infection.
8: And we have not been studying this ever. We actually don't understand anything about it. So this is going to open a brand new avenue for us to know how to target the diseases, not only necessarily Ebola, but also other diseases that act on us in a similar manner. The
7: National Institutes of Health has given Texas Biomedic Grant for this study, which will happen in one of their secure biosafety level four labs over the next two years. Reporting for the Texas Standard, I'm Bonnie Petrie.
1: Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at worksafetexas.com.
0: And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Many Texans are still feeling the effects of heavy rains this fall. In the hill country, places like Kingsland and Marble Falls still picking up the pieces after the Llano River breached its banks. The city of Austin is in the midst of a full-scale review into why its water treatment system was so overwhelmed it led to a boil water notice for nearly a week. And then there's Sonora, a town of about 2,700 people an hour south of San Angelo, hit by a catastrophic flood just over a month ago. Weeks later... How's recovery going? The Texas Standard's Michael Marks reports.
9: There isn't much left inside Mary Perez's single-story house on Plum Street, so she's giving me a tour of what used to be there.
7: The sink was here. The dishwasher was here. The pantry was there. We had a refrigerator here and another refrigerator back there.
9: Mary and her family have lived in the house for 39 years. It's on the same spot where her husband, Frank, grew up. It's still home despite the fact that almost everything has been removed from it. The Perez house is one of about 200 that flooded on the afternoon of September 21st. Inside, it looks like most houses in the neighborhood these days. All the appliances are gone. Every room has had at least a couple feet of sheetrock and insulation removed, and others have undergone a more drastic overhaul.
7: So this is this a, it, a master bedroom, and as you can see, it was completely gutted out as well.
9: The Perez House sits near the intersection of two usually dry creek beds that run through the town. Previous rains saturated the soil, and the creek beds quickly filled with water on the Friday of the flood. No one had ever seen that happen before, although this part of Sonora does sit in a floodplain. Mary and Frank waited out the flood at Sonora's Dairy Queen, when they got back, there was over a foot of water in their house. The flood didn't physically harm anyone, but anything the water touched had to be thrown out. The sound of whirring fans has filled Mary and Frank's house ever since, occasionally punctuated by this noise. Oh, come on. It's the sound of a moisture meter. Frank's been sticking the gadget into exposed studs for over a month now, but the wood always comes back as too wet. It's barely stopped raining in Sonora since the flood, which has made it impossible for a lot of people to rebuild. If our structure is too moist during reconstruction, that can lead to problems down the road with mold. It's, a, it's overwhelming. I can definitely tell you that much. That's briggs Sims, Sonora's only code enforcement officer. There's a lot of people getting pretty aggravated. They want to get back in their homes. They don't have the money to stay in hotels or stay with family or just really don't have anywhere else to go. So they're just really ready to get back in their homes. But every time I go to check, it's still really wet. The waiting game is tedious and expensive, especially since most affected homeowners didn't have flood insurance. Local charities have raised some money to help with the rebuild, but it won't be enough to keep everyone in Sonora. Several people that are just like, you know, they don't have the money to rebuild or they're just packing up and they're relocating somewhere else. They don't have money to just buy another home or, you know, they're having to move on. Isabel Navarrete and her mom, Maria Quiroz, hope they don't have to move on. Next to the door of their wide light blue house, someone has written a message in chalk reading Quiroz House Forever. The interior was completely gutted, so Maria and Isabel were sitting under the carport sorting through items they'd been able to salvage. It's been like this for weeks, and Isabel is uncertain when they'll be able to move forward.
7: We don't know how much help we're gonna get you know, and then we still gotta pick up the house according to the code. And, you know, that's gonna cost two. So, uh, it's been, it's been hard.
9: This has been an especially hard year for their family. Maria's husband, Cleofas, died in April.
7: I guess we haven't been able to yet mourn my dad's going because he just barely died in April. And then this happens, and so it's like, you don't have no emotions, as far as I can say.
9: Isabel was unsure whether there were even any physical mementos left of her dad after the flood. I walked with her to a little tan shed in the backyard that she hadn't looked through much yet. It was dark, cramped inside. The shed was filled with moving boxes, old toys, some ruined photos. But also... Oh, look!
8: Look. Oh, wow. It's an old
9: wood. A little wooden brown box with a couple hinged flaps on the top. A shoe shine kit that belonged to her dad. It was a
7: thing he, ha- he did for the weekends. It was his going out to town boots. <laughs> oh, my gosh.
9: And there's more, too, hung up near the top of the shed, blending in with the wood interior.
7: Those were his, um, oh my God, his crutches. Oh my God, those are centuries old, as you can tell. Look at that. You don't see the wooden ones like that anymore.
9: It's not that Cleophas got hurt that much. He just wasn't the kind of guy to throw things away. Something Isabel and Maria are thankful for today. It will take years for them and others in Sonora to recover. And with more rain in the forecast, reconstruction will have to keep waiting. But on this particular afternoon, in front of the Quiros family home, it's sunny outside. In Sonora, I'm Michael Marks for the Texas Standard.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Great Texas Line Press, publisher of W.F. Strong's Stories from Texas. Some of them are true at independent booksellers like River Oaks, The Twig and Book People, as well as Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and Bucky's. From the
10: Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogle with a roundup of news from across the state. Texans heading to the polls this election day in Fort Worth and the greater Houston area might see federal workers making sure election officials comply with the law. The U.S. Department of Justice is monitoring some voting sites in Tarrant, Harrison, and Waller Counties today. KERA's Anthony Cave reports.
11: The DOJ's Civil Rights Division plans to make sure voters get what they need, whether that's a private ballot for someone with a disability or helping someone who cannot read or write. The agency says it will also monitor whether jurisdictions are in compliance with federal voting rights laws. That includes voter registration lists and provisional ballot requirements. And federal officials won't just be in Texas. They'll be stationed in 35 jurisdictions in 19 states across the country. In Dallas, I'm Anthony Cave.
10: More than 20 Texas groups also want to make sure people have the resources they need if they encounter problems at the polls. The Texas Election Protection Coalition is deploying hundreds of nonpartisan volunteers to polling sites throughout the state. They're also running a hotline that voters can call to ask questions about their registration status, voter ID rules, or any issues that come up. The Texas Civil Rights Project is one of the groups spearheading the coalition. Beth Stevens is their voting rights legal director. She says they've already had reports this morning that some polling sites didn't open on time, making for longer lines. Two things on that. One is we're encouraging folks to stay in line so that they can cast their ballot. And if they can't, to let us know at the free hotline 866-OUR-VOTE so that we can look into it and, you know, potentially take action where necessary. That hotline can help out callers in English, but there are different hotlines for folks who speak other languages and need assistance. The Spanish language number is 888 the e-vote. The multi-Asian language number is eight 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 A P I vote, and then the Arabic line is eight four four yala It's Y A L L A U S. And if people want help from their non-partisan volunteers at polling sites, Stephen says most are wearing bright yellow T-shirts. And if they are at the polling location that a voter is at. The voter can just walk up and ask them questions, and if the person is able to answer them, they can do that, or they can help them get in contact with someone on the hotline. These volunteers will be stationed at polling sites in all of the state's major cities, the Rio Grande Valley, and rural areas. Texas will mark a grim anniversary tomorrow. November seventh, 2000 was the last day without a traffic fatality somewhere in the state. Texas DOT's Deidria George says drunk driving remains the leading cause of fatalities.
4: The
12: next category is actually just as preventable as occupants that are not restrained. So these are people that are getting in the car and are not buckling their seatbelt. In
10: 2017, more than 3,700 people were killed on Texas roads. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Focal for the texas standard
0: this is the texas standard i'm david brown it is an annual ritual along the gulf coast at the aransas national wildlife refuge the first whooping cranes have started to arrive it's the tallest bird in north america and also one of the rarest but why is it destination texas and what are they doing when they're not here Dr. Liz Smith knows all about this. She is Senior Whooping Crane Scientist with the International Crane Foundation, and she's in Rockport, Texas. Dr. Smith, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you. Where exactly are these whooping cranes traveling from?
12: Well, actually, they're returning here from their breeding grounds in Canada, um, up in Wood Buffalo National Park, and it's 2,500 miles away.
0: That's quite a trip. How long does it take for them to get from Canada to Rockport, Texas?
12: Well, they actually um, have a little bit of easier time coming down. They have some of their um, juveniles from this year, and so they stop in Saskatchewan and feed on waste grain there and kind of uh, get everybody pumped up, and then they get here in probably about four to six weeks.
0: Well, wow. that's that's still making pretty good time, but they have to travel through some treacherous uh uh, regions, as I understand it, not the least of which might be, for instance, the, the Dallas-Fort Worth
12: Metroplex. <laughs> well, you know, right now they do try to take a, you know, an area west of their route there, mm. but um, they do have a lot of challenges along the way. Uh, primarily one where they actually come down every night to roost, and so they have to find a wetland wherever it is is how far they get. So need a lot of great habitat along the way.
0: Is there an issue of people seeing these birds and in some some innocent way, uh, I would presume innocent way, disrupting their southward uh, journey?
12: Well, you know, uh, whooping cranes actually are very, very wary of people. And so getting even within a half a mile of them they can flush and actually fly away. And after a long day flying, um, you know, that really puts some stress on them. And we do see that they try to avoid areas that are, you know, more highly populated. And they do tend to keep on a fairly narrow course, but they do move around and and avoid some of the dangers. And when they get here, they're ready for some, you know, really great habitat and, and good food resources here.
0: Are you concerned about how the sort of the the continued sprawl, certainly here in Texas, might be affecting these birds?
12: Um, We are. Actually, you know, the the biggest concern is down here along the coastal area because we all want to live here and we all want to be by the water. I I certainly do. I love being um, right next to the water. So we're really um, working with um, local communities to, you know, make some recommendations to development to have setbacks. And, um, and to leave that natural habitat out in front uh, where the cranes can um, can continue to use it as well as a lot of other wildlife.
0: Why, why do the cranes seem to like that area so much?
12: You know, there was only um, 15 left in 1941, and they were all in one uh, peninsula right there on the Aransas Wildlife Refuge. And so as they expand, they continue to use that same kind of coastal marsh habitat. Um, but they have been expanding... Um, into more fresh areas as they move closer upwards towards um, Houston Way. They have a long way to go before they get there, but there's a lot more habitat up there because it rains more. So the future's bright for them if we can continue to conserve habitat along the coast.
0: How did they get on the endangered list in the first place?
12: You know, most of it was from um, habitat conversion um, along, you know, in the uh, mid-continent and also, you know, draining wetlands and converting to farmland as well as, um, you know, people hunting them. And back then it was um, not known that they were a very, you know, rare species to begin with. Um, but they tend to stay with each other. If uh, one is shot, um, the, the mate will stay by, and so oftentimes both the pairs um, were shot. And we still have those same um, two problems today um, with um, habitat loss and also um, accidental and some vandal shooting.
0: Well, you mentioned that back in the 40s, they were down to 15. How are their numbers now?
12: Um, this year, we expect to see over 500 here. Wow. So it's an amazing recovery. They, they're doing really well on, on that part. We just have to ensure they have enough room down here.
0: What is it that fascinates you about this bird? I mean, as a whooping crane scientist, how, what is it that, that, that drew you to this animal?
12: Well, actually, um, when I was in the fifth grade, I got to go on the whooping crane boat with my family, and I saw them, and there were probably only about 50 at that time, and they were, you know, great big birds in the marsh. Um, They were majestic, just so unbelievably independent, Um, and then the rarity of them, of course, is also so special, but I think it's a kinship with uh, loving the same place.
0: Dr. Lou Smith is Senior Whooping Crane Scientist with the International Crane Foundation. She's been speaking with us from Rockport, a place where she and the cranes both enjoy hanging out. Dr. Smith, thanks so much.
1: Thank you. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org.
0: You got to tune to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Texas has produced more than its fair share of musical legends over the years Buddy Holly, Selena, Willie, just to name a few. But few performers, Texan or otherwise, have reached the level of international superstardom to equal that of Houston's native daughter, Beyonce Knowles Carter. And while she's racked up Grammys and performed sold-out world tours, she's also helped redefine feminism, or to be more precise, the meaning of black feminism in America. That is the premise of a new book out today called Beyonce Information, Remixing Black Feminism. And the author is Omishake Natasha Tinsley, Associate Professor of African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Professor, this is a book that's being described as a mixtape memoir. What's What's behind that description?
11: Well, you know, Casey Cottrell at UT Press, after Lemonade came out, he said, you know, it would be great to have somebody write a book about Beyonce. Would you like to do it? And I said, well, yes, of course, I'm happy to do that. And he suggested, since I'd been teaching the Beyonce Feminism Rihanna Womanism class at UT for a couple of years at that time, that I incorporate some elements of stories from that class, a little bit of an autobiographical element to make it um, accessible to folks. And on the first day of that course, I always make clear to students that this course is not actually about Beyonce's feminism. This is about how the issues that Beyonce brings up in her music open space for us to think about what feminism means in our own lives. Um, Some of what Beyonce does in Lemonade is think about her own family history, right? And, And the history of communities in New Orleans and in Houston. And so I started doing a bit of that. You know, I have people in my own family who are not particularly Beyonce fans, But they're interested in Beyoncé as kind of a a jumping-off point to think about other things that may be of interest to them. You've
0: said a lot here that I want to just touch on. And and, uh, let me ask you first, Mm -hmm. uh, since you mentioned New Orleans and Houston, where are you from originally?
11: I'm born in San Francisco, California.
0: Wow. What what is your personal connection to New Orleans, Houston, and and Beyoncé? How does it all come together for you as a writer?
11: Well, Beyoncé, you know, in formation says... Now, let me get this right. Her daddy's from Alabama. Mm-hmm. Her mama's from Louisiana, right? My grandmother's from Louisiana, and my grandfather is from Alabama. My
1: daddy Alabama,
0: mama Louisiana. Yeah. You mix that Negro with that Creole, make a
10: Texas Bama. I like my baby hand with baby hand from. I
0: like my Negro nose with Jackson 5-9 strong.
11: The Bay Area where I'm from, the black population is mostly people who came from Louisiana and Texas, primarily during the post-World War II or the World War II period. And so the stories that they had of the South were of a place where there was no opportunity for them. Mm -hmm. But I was always interested in where did my family come from? I'd done some traveling to Alabama before uh, moving here, but when I moved here to work at UT in 2012, it became a different kind of opportunity for me to to drive to Louisiana, to meet family who live here in Texas, and um, to understand, I had heard the stories about why it was important to leave, but also to hear the stories about what people, what nourished people who stayed here.
0: I have to ask you about Lemonade, Yes. It was, for many people, uh, more than just an album. Yeah. It's almost become a kind of a cultural touchstone in Mm -hmm. in a sense. Why?
11: Um, I think so when Beyonce was performing um, from the self-titled album, and she stood up in front of that brightly lit sign that said feminist at the VMAs in 2014 it changed people's image of what a feminist was and that the face of feminism could be not only undeniably popular, but unapologetically black.
10: we such a good time with you. Y'all ready to get grimy? <laughs> Y'all sing with me.
11: Was actually worried that the self titled album was very cosmopolitan. There's a lot of it that's set in Europe, that the specificity of her her Houstonness and her Southernness was going to be lost. And then she turned around and did the opposite of that in Lemonade. She styled a universe in which Black women re inhabit the plantations and the cities of the Gulf Coast and turn them into spaces for our own healing out of that.
0: In your classes that you mm. teach, what, is, what, what sort of stories do you hear? What, what, how do the students interact with the, the subject matter on a daily basis?
11: You know, when I started teaching the course, a lot of the students who are in the course are from Houston. And a lot of them have families that came to Houston from Louisiana, or their families are still in Louisiana, Mm -hmm. right? And so I've learned a lot, for example, about black country music in the Houston area, right? And songs like Daddy Lessons, people recognize, like, oh, yeah, you know, the images of black people riding horses Mm -hmm. in um, in the city, right? Right. They're like, you know, yeah, this this is where we're from.
3: Came into this world, daddy's little girl held my hand. Daddy liked his whiskey with his tea.
11: People take Beyonce very personally as kind of an image of yes, our experience matters, yes, it's something that everybody can learn from, but also hold Beyoncé to a particularly high standard and are upset where they feel like she misrepresents Houston or misrepresents what it means to be a Black woman.
0: That misrepresents.
11: Yes. There's always a tension around students who find Beyoncé's celebration of sexuality very empowering and students who feel they're already vulnerable as Black women and are not always comfortable with the way that Beyonce represents black female sexuality as a powerful
10: voice. the The
11: tension that's often there around Beyonce's representation about black women's sexuality, I try and say, you know, there's no right or wrong answer. We're all just trying to make sense of our lives. Mm -hmm. And they're complicated.
0: You know, authors want people to take away something from their work, obviously. And I wonder, what do you hope someone walks away with when they're done with your book?
11: My book is really a love song to black women, and particularly black women in the U.S. South. For those people who are black women, I hope that it reflects our lovableness and for everybody who has black women in their lives, I hope that it inspires people to give the black women that they love, including themselves, an extra drop of honey-sweetened love.
3: They don't love you like I love you. Slow down, they don't
0: love you like I love you. Natasha Tinsley is Associate Professor of African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She's currently a visiting professor at Harvard and she is the author of a new book called Beyoncé Information Formation, Remixing Black Feminism. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for coming into the studio.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you.
0: This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. For those in the news business and those who care about politics, this is the main event, the culmination of months of conversation, conjecture, consideration of the issues, the candidates, and much more. At 7 p.m. local time, the race to tabulate ballots begins, and as results trickle in county by county, major news organizations begin to call the winners and losers, but behind the scenes, what's really going on? Who's actually doing the counting, and how? Well, Robert Stein knows all about how the sausage gets made on election night. He's professor in the Department of Political Science at Rice University. Welcome. Sure. Happy to do it. Who's actually counting those ballots?
13: Well, in the state of Texas, it's a designated uh, clerk of each of the 254 counties. There are some counties which have um, a designated election administrator, but most counties, particularly the large ones, it is the uh, partisan elected clerk, which interestingly means that in some counties... The same person who is counting the votes is also on the ballot. The simple answer to the question is it depends on how the ballots is cast. Um, most of the jurisdictions in Texas use something called a DRE, which is just a, a voting machine. Um, there's no paper trail. So the vote you get um, on the first count better be the vote you get on the second count. But it's electronically compiled, just like you might do on your hand calculator. Some other jurisdictions, of course, have paper ballots. They're marked. And they can be hand-counted, but very few are. They're optically scanned. Mm -hmm. And they can be scanned usually at the county courthouse by the election official. As you all know, we have absentee mail-in ballots. right? And they, too, are paper ballots, big ones. They're large. They fold out. Mm -hmm. And they're filled out by hand. They're mailed back. And they are also, in most instances, tabulated on an optical scanning machine. Once that
0: vote is cast... Is there any going back? In other words, if you see that a, that a tabulation is awfully close, you know between one candidate and another, how do you go back and
13: recount? Or is that you don't? Possi- you, you can't. Don't. I mean, what's very important to remember about electronic voting, which was extremely popular um, after two thousand election, an election that was contested for reasons of. Um, hanging chads and inappropriately um, counted punch cards um, is there is no paper trail. The first tabulation you get on an electronic voting machine should be the last one you get. So the possibility of a recount where you're sitting there and holding a paper ballot and verifying with um, your physical observation isn't possible with a DRE um, and has raised a lot of concerns, of course, not only about errors and hacking, but whether or not you can actually do a what we call validation or recount, um, there has been a controversy over it. And most jurisdictions in the country now over half um, do not use an electronic device. They, they have moved back to um, what we call paper From the county level, what then
0: happens? Because, of course, as we see on that big map that the cable news networks show, it seems like certain counties are taking their time to get the ballot. If this is electronically tabulated, why the wait?
13: Well, I think there are two other things that happen on election night before they release, one is known is known as a provisional vote. People come and vote and they don't have the proper um, identification and qualifications. And they're forced to um, uh, submit a provisional ballot. Those ballots don't get counted until as many as two or three days after sure. the election. Mm-hmm. Then there's the um, paper ballots that come in from the mail um, ballots, they have to be counted. Some jurisdictions don't process them until election night. Some do. And then there's something called unicava, which is just a fancy word for overseas military and uh, expats who also vote, but they don't necessarily vote by mail. Um, Finally, it's worth noting here that what you hear on election night Mm -hmm. is not the official outcome of the election. The state of Texas and many, many states, if not all, require what's called a canvas. The canvas is the official recalculation of the vote. That means going back through in cases of electronic voting machines and calibra- checking every machine that came in from every precinct. Remember, mm-hmm. we might have multiple machines. Right. That canvas can be done as late. At, well, I think the state of Texas requires it to be done in, I think, 10 working days. That vote is reported to the Secretary of State, and that is the official.
0: Professor Stein, this is kind of a Super Bowl night. For political junkies, certainly, and for people who care about the process and that kind of thing. Why do we do it this way? Why not wait until the, the light of day and uh, try to process this tomorrow or over the course of a week? Do it with uh, greater deliberation, perhaps.
13: Elections are most important for the people that lose the election. What makes an election so important is that we have trust in the outcome and in the fairness with which the election was conducted, the counting. If the loser doesn't believe that the election was conducted fairly, justly, and accurately, he or she and their followers and their supporters begin to have diminished support for the government that's elected. The real threat to democracy is when people don't believe that we conduct fair elections. Why do we have the results as quickly as possible? Because research has shown that voters' confidence in the outcome of an election diminishes with every delay, with every excuse that we're still counting, we're still checking, we're still making certain. One of the things we put tremendous, I think, value on is producing not just fair um, and accurate elections, but timely results.
0: Robert Stein is an elections expert and political science professor at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Dr. Stein, thanks so much for taking time to speak with us. My pleasure. Have a good day. You too. And vote. And you're listening to The Texas Standard. I like how the professor there snuck in and vote mm-hmm. there at the last
6: minute. Uh, what are you hearing out there on social media, Wells Dunbar? Hi, David. Well, uh, first up, a quick update to the story I mentioned at the top of the show, the Border Patrol's announcement of a, quote-unquote, crowd control mm-hmm. exercise near a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood in El Paso. It's Election Day timing prompting many questions. Well, a new tweet from Bob Moore, the reporter who covered the, who uh, one of the reporters covering that story, it, he announces the Border Patrol has patrol has postponed its election day exercise per the agents at the site of course this after questions over whether or not this amounted to some form of voter suppression or otherwise just strange timing to have that on election day Speaking of which, Election Day is here, and we wanted to hear from our friends and listeners about their election night plans, whether they'd be out at watch parties, tuning it out, stress eating, imbibing adult beverages. What are their plans yes. for election night? Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, we do have a whole lot of reactions here on our Facebook page. Frank Via is going with that whole adult beverages thing. He says, I'm going to drink beer and watch the results on my back porch there's no possible outcome that could stop me from drinking. I guess it's a celebration one way and <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> a little get bit where of a wake going the other that. way. Uh-huh. Jennifer McElroy-Clark says she's still traumatized after 2016's election night. She says, I will distract myself and ignore the election coverage until things are final. Meanwhile, Rachel Macri says, I am too verklempt. I have a stack of DVDs and I can't just go through the minute by minute crawls and breaking news for six hours tonight, so she will be tuning it out. Meanwhile, Blythe Johnson says, I'm surprised by the number of people who say they'll be tuning out. I'll definitely be watching. I'm inspired by all the young voters and first-time voters. And, of yep. course, we'll be watching uh, everything very closely. We'll be sharing updates on uh, Twitter and social media. We'll, uh, as will re- public radio reporters across the state, you can follow the conversation there with the hashtag TX Right, And also, you know, we got some like cool uh, Twitter lists of reporters that are going to be out in the field. So we'll just keep it humming all night long on our Twitter feed there at twitter.com slash Standard and on our Facebook page.
0: Indeed. So you know where to go. Alas, we're out of time for the big broadcast boy tomorrow you're not going to want to miss it that's for sure we're going to have a whole lot of analysis a whole lot of folks to talk with and we hope you can join us till then make sure you get out and vote if you hadn't done so yet on behalf of the entire texas standard crew i'm david brown wishing you a terrific tuesday
1: philanthropic support for texas standard comes from casey and scott o'hare the winkler family foundation lynn dobson and greg woldridge adrian killam and the george huntington family